Hello from the ABA Mid-Year Meeting 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Kimberly Sanchez. And by special exception, I am co-host Chad Burton. And I'm Rebecca Sandifer. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're talking to Rebecca. And Rebecca, tell us a little bit about you before we start. So I'm an academic sociologist. I'm a college professor at the University of Illinois, and I'm a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation. And I study how people think about and handle their justice problems, and then different kinds of services and ways of helping them with those problems. Wow. Like, nobody is doing that. Right. That's amazing. I mean, there is such a need for that. Is anybody else doing that? There's a small merry band of access to justice researchers. We're trying to grow the family, but it's pretty small. Is anybody credibly doing it besides you, though? <laughs> Absolutely. <Okay. laughs> well, Sorry, I mean, I'm. this is my me fangirling, but yeah. that's fine. So that's, uh, well, let's that's why I'm a, here, by special exception. That's right. We'll create a <laughs> when hashtag. When I heard this was happening, I'm like, I got to be here. <laughs> they didn't want me to, but I'm here. <laughs> we are super happy to have you, Mr. Chad Burton. I assumed. So, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about this research, um, sort of, and, and I know that you have this really neat report that's coming out very soon. It's a... It's on Monday. It's oh, coming out. I know. Well, what's that called when we, when we talk about it in advance and it's like a super secret? Well, this is probably not coming out before Monday, so the podcast, I'm guessing... But we're but, talking about it in advance. But we're dun, talking dun. about it in advance. Okay. Super secret access? Yes. Ooh. Ooh. Premium that you, access. That you probably talked about during the... But you probably talked about it during... Well, you did talk about it during the panel earlier, so yes, it's already I, out. Standing yeah. room only at that panel, by the way, which yes. um, I am so, like, amazed by the fact that a bunch of lawyers would show up at an innovation panel and there would be standing room only. I es think that says something. Especially at... And this is significant because we are at Caesar's Palace, which is absurd, and you can get all your steps within like about five minutes of leaving yeah, your hotel room. And so for people to walk to that room at a mid-year meeting actually means something. Right. So, <laughs> Wait, They probably stopped early to stop at the slot machine, but that's beside the point. Or the bar. Yeah. That's right. That's Either right. way. So They're they were ready to talk. That's right. And listen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Rebecca, tell us about this report, sort of how it was generated, why it was generated, and sort of what you have seen as findings. Sure. So one of the things I've been working on for the past few years is how we can take expertise that has traditionally been the purview of lawyers. Are there pieces of that that we could pair off and give to things that are not lawyers? So a few years ago, a couple years ago, I published a study on um, social workers and volunteers and courts who are helping people in eviction and debt collection cases who have, have a little bit of training, but certainly don't have legal training. And then another occupation called a limited license legal technician, which is in the state of Washington, which is kind of like a junior varsity lawyer. So you, you have a, more limited re educational requirements, but you still pass three bar exams. So the ethics exam, a general exam, and the exam in the area that you're certified in, which right now is only family. So this, the, what I was talking about today was a project that follows up on that same question. Like what parts of what lawyers used to do could we responsibly and effectively hand off to things that are not lawyers, but instead of them being people, um, today they were digital tools. So apps, websites, I suppose eventually they could be robots, but as far as I know, there are no legal robots yet. Um, and so I was Even looking, though there should be. 
Oh, or, it's or perhaps they seem like they are. <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe they exist already, but they just look like robots. <laughs> but like they they're made like out people. of human versus <laughs> we metal. peel off their faces. Right, yeah. exactly. That's right. Um, That's what we're doing here at Midyear. I know a few of those. <laughs> we have a few. We're doing some face peelings here at Midyear. <laughs> Uh, well, this is a very interesting topic because there's a lot of confusion, controversy, criticism around this uh, particular area. And um, to actually see that there is some sort of, you know, I don't want to say empirical study, but some research that's surrounding it to talk about it so that we can talk about it in a way that like lawyers really like to talk about things, which is based on evidence and analysis and so forth. So, and, and like I said, I mean, to have a standing room only sort of, uh, you know, conversation about this, I think it speaks to the legal profession, but you tell us a little bit more about that. So what I reported on today was, um, I think we call, I called it a landscape survey. So we tried to find all the tools that we could that were designed for people who are not lawyers, whether that's you with your own problem trying to solve it, or somebody who's a community worker or a social worker or, or a pastor or any, you know, staff of some organization trying to help you work on your problem. So things that help, I'm going to call them non-lawyers, work on justice problems. We found about 322 of them across a whole range of different kinds of justice problems. So about half of them do something about criminal law. Um, there's, there's consumer law, there's family law, there's all kinds of different areas in which these tools are developed. And the other thing we looked at besides sort of what kind of problem they might help you with is what kind of help do they actually provide. Right. And there's a big mismatch between most of the help that's available and what we know about most of the help that people need. So if you look at these tools, the most common thing that they do is provide legal information. So they tell you what the law says. The law says your landlord can't just change the locks on your apartment, something like that. Then there's another bundle of them that are basically lawyer referral services. So they connect you to attorneys. Uh, sometimes those are, are legal aid attorneys, but often it's a for-profit platform that lets lawyers market their services. Maybe it's unbundled, maybe it's not. And then there's some of them that make documents. So if you can get a state to agree that this particular form will be accepted in all the courts in that state, then some of these tools will help you produce that document. That's not super advanced. <laughs> um, giving people long chunks of text with lots of legal information, not super advanced. Uh, lawyer referral services have been around for a long time. We're just automating them by doing this. And then producing documents, I think that's very helpful for people who are already involved in a court process or recognize that that's what they need to do. But one thing we know about Americans and actually people in other jurisdictions is that they don't typically think of their justice problems as having legal aspects. So they think right. the reason my employer is not paying me overtime is because he's a jerk. Um, they think that the reason this is happening to me is because it's just really my bad luck. It's only for about 9% of people's justice problems that they say that's a legal problem. So... Lots of long lists of legal information can be useful for people who already know they have a legal problem, but that's not most people with problems. So what would be really nice in this space would be tools, and there are a few of them, that would help somebody diagnose their life as having this problem in it that maybe law could help them take action on. Wow. I think we all know that. We just don't say it. We don't talk about it. I'm curious about this mismatch, though. Right? Like the mismatch between what the consumer needs, which is what it sounds like, mm -hmm. and what we think as a community the consumer needs. I think that maybe I'm. I mean, part of it is like the actual effectiveness of the tool, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, that it too. seems. Yeah. Well, I'll, I mean, I think it's a different way of saying mm -hmm. that because, like, the. Um, I think this has to do most of the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, with funding where people will develop an app and say, hey, 
this is cool. We're going to help get information out to people, but then they don't know how to collect. Well, the funding or the, the effort that's put into it isn't actually collecting the data necessary to understand the impact of that tool. Is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, an- another way to put it is that a lot of these tools are provider-driven. So mm-hmm. there's somebody in their basement who has a cool idea and they want to help people. And so they design something that makes sense to them without really thinking about who the user groups might be and what they might need. Or um, a lot of stuff that comes out of legal aid is, I mean, those organizations don't have, as you said, the money to do intensive market research for the populations right. they might serve. So they do the best they can based on what they think people probably need. Right. And I think, I mean, and this is not a criticism, this is just reality where a lot of times where you get a grant, for example, to create something where you can do the the first version of it where it gets it out in front of people, but it's not marketing and measuring from there because the money's just not involved with that. Absolutely, particularly in the nonprofit space. Right, which is fair, <laughs> absolutely fair. Right, yeah. and but that is kind of where the access to justice conversation really, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? We can talk about access to justice and we can, but that's sort of where, and so what does this report, I mean, just sort of surveying all of these things, like where do we go from here? Well, you know, especially as we relate to like the nonprofit and the for-profit community and legal community, sort of where do we go from here? I think that if we're thinking about the for-profit side, there's a big untapped market of people who would pay for some kinds of legal services for problems that they don't currently understand to be legal. All kinds of preventative stuff, which is less expensive than the after-the-fact disaster recovery. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but, but Americans don't buy that stuff either. I mean, most Americans don't have a will, even though a will is not... Most of us don't have estates that are complex enough to make our wills really expensive. So there's that part of it. And that requires thinking like the people who would use the service and experience the problem rather than thinking from the perspective of law. Yeah. Um, and the same thing is true on the not-for-profit side. And there are a few organizations that do this, that do collaborative design or co-design with the groups that they want, who they want to help. And they together decide what the problem is and what would be the, the functions of the tool that would solve that problem. And that's a, that's a long process, and it can be a costly process. It doesn't have to be super costly. Um, but it's, it's the only way, especially as, as commercial tools get better and better and more intuitive and more engaging, if we want people to use access to justice tools, they've got to use those same kinds of insights because our expectations now are that it's going to be, or that it's going to be very pleasant to interact with these things. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like that's a you know, sort of where these access to justice tools need to sort of meet each other so that that they're sustainable and actually relevant and helpful. Because, I mean, the survey of over 200 access to justice tools, I mean, what is the percentage of them that are actually being used in a meaningful way? Well, that gets trickier. Okay. So um, we know that there are lots of forms made for family issues, Uh, In every state, and most states have forms for different kinds of parenting plans and simple divorces and that kind of stuff. It's difficult to get people to take up new tools. So if you go on Google Play and iTunes, you can see how many people have downloaded one of these things. And sometimes the the number will be a single digit. Sometimes it'll be 13. Um, And so thinking about, and that's again, partly it's the way the tools are constructed. So they're they're like, I want to help you with your legal problem. But if I'm not thinking about legal problems, I'm not going to look for that tool. Part of it is that we don't have this expectation yet. 
I mean, we have this expectation that before we go to a restaurant, we might look for reviews, but we don't have this expectation that before we figure out what to do with our neighbor who's really ticking us off, we should go on the internet and find out strategies for how to deal with your neighbor. Hmm. Um, so there's there's that. And then once you get to the internet, it's very difficult to find many of these things. Particularly if you cannot define that your issue is a legal issue. Right. Right. It's a life issue. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I could see where, I mean, I absolutely see how, like, you have a life issue, you don't recognize that it's a legal issue, and then when you maybe find out it's a legal issue, you Google it, you try to figure out, you've got this tool, and it may, like, be outdated or not, or, or not for the wrong jurisdiction. Or, or for the, as right. A, as somebody on the panel said today, the internet goes everywhere. There was a fascinating study in London where they took college students. So these are people who are digital natives, right? The internet has been around their entire lives. And they said, okay, here's some questions. The answers to these factual legal questions are on the internet. Go find them. So these college students in London would, if you put this stuff in, what comes up? Stuff in California, right? Because part of it is the volume of hits that the site gets. So then these nice, well-educated college students in London would say, well, here's how California law applies to this English justice problem. So people are not necessarily very good at filtering what they can find when they're able to find it. Hmm. Yeah, so there's an identification of a legal issue. There's a filtering issue. And then at the end of the day, you do need a lawyer. No. Yes. Keep going. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's it's. Pretty... Did I take the conservative route right there? Uh, well, oh my! Uh, <laughs> I don't know who you are anymore. Um, it's it's pretty clear if you look at research evidence about people who are not lawyers, they can effectively do some parts of what lawyers traditionally have done. And if you go to other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom, there are no restrictions on non-lawyers giving legal advice. And there are, are well-developed advice sectors where people who are not lawyers tell you what to do about your justice problems. And I looked at some survey data from England a few years ago to see whether this, this was a time when 50% of the British population was eligible for subsidies from the government for legal aid. So um, the UK has a adjudicare system, so it's like Medicare. You go and you have a voucher and you pay a private provider. So 50% of the population was eligible for at least some of that. They were still much more likely to take their problems to the advice sector than they were to go to attorneys, even when attorneys were free. And I think there's an important insight there, both about what it's possible to create that is useful to people, but also about what people want. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily want their day in court or an right. attorney or a formal action. So we're talking about all these ways of getting at people, like you know, understanding like Google search and you know, social media ways of reaching people. What do you think is the, taking the tools that are out there now? What do you think is the best way to actually get them in front of people's faces in an effective manner? So like a legal checkup or something that like you know could be useful, but. Like, how do you get in front of the person's face? I think at this point, the best way to do it is with the places they already go to. So they already go to their religious community when they're in trouble. So can you train the secretaries of the church that right. you know, sometimes people are coming in and here's a way that you might be able to help them. Um, other kinds of community organizations, I think local uh, lawmakers offices, aldermen and, and assembly people and all that kind of stuff, who people often go to for constituent services or to complain about things in their communities. Um, there's also, a, in New York City, there's a, there are, I think, five and about to be six offices of this thing called Legal Hand. And so Legal Hand is 
lay people. They're not attorneys who are volunteers. They're supervised, and there's an attorney in the back for backup. Um, but basically, they're members of a community, and you can come in and say, hey, I just got this really creepy letter. What does this mean? And they'll help you figure out what that means, and then they can connect you to other kinds of services. I think, I think we're going to need people for a really long time. So mm-hmm. what's interesting about that is it's not about you know, Google AdWords or social media campaigns. It's about getting the tools in very specific areas where people are going, which may not be the natural place that lawyers think about. Exactly. Like you just, I mean, all that, like what you just rattled off, it just was like, well, yeah, obviously. Check, check, check. Yeah, why wouldn't we do that? But that's not normal. It's like, well, no, we'll just... We'll buy some Facebook campaigns well, and that, that people will <laughs> like it better that way. <laughs> I think that's right. Except, right. And, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what Rebecca is highlighting is in her study is that we're not talking about, you know, how lawyers recognize problems. We're talking right. about how people interpret their lives and how they don't recognize that like a life problem is also a legal problem. And then, I mean, and so that's the first seemingly the first barrier based on sort of this report. But then we look at all these tools that are out there that are not actually created by people necessarily, <laughs> like right. for their life right. problem. Right. They're created by lawyers and like people who are trying to do really good to, to lawyers are people. This a just in a way. <laughs> so, usually. Right. Uh, yeah. No. That's, <laughs> <laughs> what are you suggesting, Kimberly? I am suggesting that I don't know, there may be like lawyer robots <laughs> that already oh, exist on already, this planet. Did we already like do we already feel And they're in Vegas the, right the now. Feeling? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um so, Rebecca, in the room today, when you were talking about this with the other panelists, who I, I believe were also talking about a lot of the innovations. Who, just for the record, chose not to show up for this podcast. That's right. That's right. So, we'll, shame. <laughs> we can do that. That's why we'll I'm co-host. Their, we'll say their names at the very end, just right. so they are in fact Dan Rodriguez, shamed. where are you right now? <laughs> right. Center for Innovation. Right. Yeah, but with the Center for Innovation, which is this incredible, um, I thought, I think, uh, progressive and thoughtful uh, idea by the ABA to to take these kinds of things that we're hearing and knowing and like that the research that you're doing and, and think about like how do we innovate in ways and you, I'm sure your research is in, incredibly like helpful to that particular area but also were there comments in the room like what was the feeling in the room or regarding this sort of particular topic as you guys talked about it I mean is this something that lawyers are or, you know, have an appetite for, or was there opposition? I'm curious. I think it's something that there's a lot of hype about. Hmm. And so on the, on the legal profession side, part of the hype is, wow, these are really, if you're looking at the tools that are designed for lawyers, and there are many of them, these are really wonderful ways that we can serve people at scale, right? So we can grow our client base because we can serve more people in less time. Mm-hmm. We can do cooler and more effective legal analysis with AI and so on. So there's that side of the hype. But the other side of the hype in the legal profession is, oh, my God, the robots are going to take our jobs. And your <laughs> right. face, apparently, <laughs> based right. on this podcast. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and lots of things that, law, that uh, particularly associates and small firm lawyers used to do have been automated. 
right? Mm-hmm. So if we make if we make a pleading into a form, then you just fill out the form. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, you had to read a document to find all the references to something. Now you can control F, right? So, yeah. so uh, that's been happening for a while, and it's going to keep happening. But if you look in the access to justice space, the hype is different. So the hype in the access to justice space is either a theme of we're never going to have enough resources to give attorneys to everyone who might be able to benefit from them. So can we somehow automate part of what attorneys do and then scale that up? Because scaling up digital tools is cheaper than human beings, maybe, Mm -hmm. we think. (laughs) So uh, somebody calls that the nirvana of increased access at reduced price, right? So we're just going to hope that that, that it's going to work that way. But another reason you see a lot of interest in this in the access to justice space is because it it has the potential to promote what some people call legal empowerment. So you're a citizen in a democracy. You're supposed to be being governed by the rule of law. Are these tools a way that we can distribute some of the expertise that the legal profession has had for a long time so that individual people or particular communities can understand and act on their own justice problems in a way that they weren't able to before? And I think that there's a lot of potential to create those kinds of tools and to have really good social benefits. We're just sort of at the very early days right. in developing It's kind of like things. a translation tool. Right. We're Mm -hmm. sort of translating what it is that, you know, we as lawyers think is like really, really important and sort of like select into something that is, you know, recognizable by a consumer. I think that's really very, very interesting. And I think that you're, you know, what you have talked about in that report that's going to be coming out Monday. And yes, we have the exclusive. That's what my, we have the exclusive Can we just be right more now. specific? Can everybody just listen to Rebecca and stop it? Just start ignoring everyone else. <laughs> and then we would be light years ahead of where we are right now. No, that's right. I think I, I, I don't Sorry, think anybody disagrees. Again, Actually, but, I know, think a whole bunch of- Yeah, at the beginning and the end, but like, can we just listen to what she's saying and then everything will be easier. <laughs> and, right, Lawrence? And you know what? The incredibly inspiring words of the Mr. Chad Burton will end As this. As co-host. That's right. That's by right. a special exception. <laughs> And super wisdom. Absolutely appreciate Chad Burton as co-host and very much appreciate you, Rebecca. Rebecca, could you give us some contact information in case our listeners would like to reach out? Sure. If you would like to contact me, um, you can reach me at the American Bar Foundation. My email is r-s-a-n-d-e-f-u-r at abfn.org. And phonetically, that's Sandifer, I believe. It is R. Sandifer. R. Sandifer. Excellent. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.